Please be seated. While you're taking your seats, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. And before we would begin our message this morning, I want to take time to address something that I've had a few of you come and ask me about. Earlier this week, there was a shooting down in Nashville. A mentally ill person went into a school and killed six people. And oftentimes when these events occur, the question becomes, where's God? It reminds us that we live in a sin-cursed world where there is evil. But that does not mean God is not good and that God is not reigning on the throne, sovereign over all things. So in the midst of tragedy, as believers, that we enter into the pain and hurt of those that lost their lives, we don't know the purposes of God sometimes, but we must hold to what we do know, that God is good, that God is powerful, and God knows what He is doing. So our hearts and our prayers go out to the families of those that lost loved ones. I think it would be appropriate if we would just pray for them now. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we recognize there is evil. There is depravity and there is wickedness in this world. And we want to pray for the families of Mike Hill, who is 61 years old and lost his life. We pray for his wife and his children and his grandchildren. For Catherine Koontz and Cynthia Peake, who both in their early 60s, lost their lives. We pray for their families as they go through this grieving and mourning. When we pray for the children who lost their lives. We pray for Evelyn and William Kenny, who both were nine years old. The tragic loss of life. We pray for the families as they grieve. And we pray for the families of Haley Scruggs, the pastor of that church. We pray for Pastor Scruggs this morning as whether or not he's in the pulpit or not, we just pray that his church right now is rallying around him in support. Lord, it is especially painful as we think about the death of children. Some of us here can relate, but Lord, we know, Heavenly Father, that you know what it's like to lose a son as you gave up your son for your enemies. So Father, we pray as you are the God of all comfort, you would comfort them in their afflictions that they might be a testimony of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know nothing can be done with the shooter as justice was served by the civil magistrate swiftly. But we pray for the family if they are unbelievers, that the testimony of your people, the goodness and kindness and the forgiveness that is seen, would be shown to them. That they might come to know Jesus Christ through this. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 6. And it was also fitting with our reading from the Heidelberg Catechism to be addressing this issue of murder. 
And yet again, we will see even this morning another account of murder by the hands of wickedness. Follow along with me in Mark chapter 6, picking up in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name has become, had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This ends the reading of the word of God. The great explorer, Ernest Shackleton, led several British expeditions to the Antarctic in the early 1900s, which, of course, even now is dangerous. Consider what it would have been like back then to travel with Shackleton to the South Pole. Frigid temperatures, rough seas, lack of sleep, long stretches of darkness, the uncertainty of making it back alive doesn't sound like the type of adventure people would be willing to want to sign up for, does it? It is believed that before one of his expeditions, Shackleton put an ad in the newspaper for others to join him. The ad may be more legend than fact, but it went something like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, Safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in the event of success. How many of us would be willing to make haste to sign up for such a journey? If we are honest, we would say the cost is too high. In order to follow Shackleton, you had to be willing to risk it all. You had to be willing to suffer. You had to be willing to die. And you know what? Many signed up. What we see before us here, even in this text, is nothing less. 
We see that it is one who risked it all, who is willing to suffer and ready to die as a faithful follower of the Lord. So the question before us, even here this morning, are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to risk it all? The title of this morning's message is The Reality of Ministry. It will cost you everything. So we find ourselves here in this account of the death of John the Baptist in the middle of a Mark sandwich. He's begun with showing us the apostolic mission as Jesus has sent out his apostles. And then he inserts this account right in the middle because you would see in verse 30 the return of the apostles. To help us make sense of this account, we must consider the immediate context, what is being said here, and then what is surrounding it, ultimately in light of the whole council of God. So let's first consider what is immediately before us in this text. And it is a tale of wickedness. A tale of wickedness. I want you to first consider verses 14 through 16. A wicked man. We are introduced to King Herod. His name is Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch. Literally, Tetrarch meaning ruler of one fourth. He's the son of Herod the Great. This is the one who was, when Jesus was born and the wise men go to him, they go to Herod the Great and they inquire where the king is to be born. Herod the Great dies shortly after the birth of Jesus and upon his death, the emperor divides King Herod's kingdom, which is not really his kingdom, but he divides it into fourths and it's given one, a fourth to his older son, a fourth to his middle son, Antipas, Another fourth to another son. Antipas here, King Herod, as we are referring to him, because oftentimes there's a lot of Herods and you might not know which one is which. But this is Antipas, King Herod. He is given the authority to rule over Galilee. His brother, his half-brother of the same father but different mother, Philip, is given the territory north of Galilee. Philip's name is mentioned here because of this wicked relationship that occurs. But we must understand that King Herod is a vassal king, meaning that he really is in cahoots with Rome. He's working for the emperor. He's working for Augustus. He's over the kingdom, but it's not really his kingdom. These vassal kings, meaning that they were of Jewish lineage, but they, had, they were mixed. They swore their allegiance to Rome. Therefore, they were not liked by their fellow Jews. King Herod, what we know of this man is he is a power-hungry, politically motivated man. He's motivated by political and military success and achievements. He is a wicked man. In verse 16, what we see here of him, as word is getting out about Jesus and there's speculation of who Jesus might be. Is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Is he one of the prophets? They think this because Jesus is the, has the fervency of Elijah. He has the boldness of John the Baptist. And he has the power of preaching of the prophets, but it's all in one person. They can't figure out who he is. And so they're speculating who might he be. And what we see of this wicked man, Herod, is that first he is a paranoid man. We are introduced to the fact that he killed John the Baptist. He believes that John the Baptist has been resurrected from the dead, and that is who Jesus is, and he's coming back to haunt him. What we could see even from here 
is the result of living in unrepentant sin. Constantly looking over your shoulder. You can hide from your sin. You can hide your sin from people, but you cannot hide it from your conscience or your creator. And Herod is living with this paranoia concerning the death of John the Baptist. He is a wicked man. And as this account unfolds, we'll see more of his wickedness. Because it leads here into verses 17 through 20, a wicked relationship. I'm telling you, this is a tale of wickedness all the way through. From a wicked man to a wicked relationship. And an understanding of why Herod kills John is given to us here. Herod had sent and seized John in verse 17. And then we are introduced to Herodias, who is the arch-villain of this wicked tale. She's driving this whole scheme. Herod's just the puppet. He's the paranoid puppet. Whereas Herodias is running this whole thing. And what is it that we see happening here between these two? What is the issue at hand? These two have formed an unholy union. A wicked relationship. Both of them have previously been married. Josephus, a first century historian, provides much more detail concerning the relationship and the life of Herod and Herodias. He gives more detail than the biblical authors because the biblical authors aren't finding it necessary to give all the details for the purpose of their accounts. So according to Josephus, Herod and Herodias go on a trip to Rome. And there in Rome, they fall in love with each other. And in falling in love with each other, this wicked relationship begins to be developed. And they conspire to have this wicked plan. I'm going to divorce my spouse. You're going to divorce your spouse. And we're going to come together. This is his sister-in-law. And so this account, this happens. John the Baptist knows about it. He's well, he's well aware of this wicked act. And he goes up to Herod and says, this is not lawful. This is wickedness. You must repent and turn from this. John is a man of courage and conviction, and he boldly proclaims to Herod, and by implication, Herodias, that they're in sin. No doubt, Leviticus 18, 16, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. Then again in verse 21, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. John knew the law and John brought the law to bear upon the conscience and actions of Herod. It's important to note here what John does not say to Herod. He doesn't come up to Herod and say, are you a believer? Because if so, then you're violating God's law. No, he doesn't have the attitude that that's his sin, that's his problem. No, John rightly understood something that we all need to recover. That God's word, God's moral law found in the word of God is binding upon all people everywhere, regardless of whether or not you are a believer. If you got in your car right now and said, I don't care about speed limits, and you just started driving because you don't believe in speed limits, you would still be breaking the law whether or not you thought the law applied to you. This is very important. Sin is never relative. Ever. 
There is an objective moral standard by which all humanity will be judged. The bar is not moved based off of someone's beliefs. Do you believe in the word of God? Well, then it's sin to you. No, it's sin whether or not you believe it or not. So to the atheist, to the Jew, to the Muslim, to the Christian, all are called to submit and obey to God. To the first four, it is to convert, to repent and believe. If Jesus possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, that means all people are to submit to that authority. To not to submit is sin. So what we see from John here in this wicked relationship is that he does not back down from the political authorities when the clear commands of God are transgressed. We live in Rhode Island. We live in the state that really began with Roger Williams, the separation of church and state, right? And what we understand of the separation of church and state is separate spheres of authority but not separate arenas that never talk. We must understand this. God has given the civil magistrate the power of the sword. God has given the church the keys to the kingdom. And both are to operate within their spheres of authority. But there are times where the church must turn and look to the state and the civil magistrate and say, this is wickedness and this is sin. And we must stand for righteousness and oppose that which is evil. It's not, oh, that's just their problem. The church is to influence the civil magistrate in righteousness. That's what we see in John. Even if it would cost you your life. So as a result, Herodias hates him. You're not going to be a faithful Christian and loved by the world. We know that, right? Herodias hates him. Herod fears him. Yet Herod is perplexed. He's a paranoid puppet who's now perplexed. Knowing that John is righteous and knowing that he is wrong. Herod knows he's wrong. But he's, he's stuck between Herodias and John and his own wicked desires. And so he's weak. This wicked relationship leads to a wicked plot. Verses 21 through 24. Herodias is looking for any way to get John killed. Whatever opportunity, Herod won't do it. He's scared to do it. He'd probably be doing it if he could, but he's just, he's he's paralyzed. Uh, That's enough peas for now with Herod. (laughs) I still have a few more. But But Herodias is looking for any way to get John killed, and her wickedness knows no bounds. If we haven't noticed yet in the reading, as we are uncovering this woman, she is probably one of the most wicked women in all of the scriptures right up there with Jezebel. But she is looking for any way possible. People to her are just objects to achieve her ends. Herod, for what he would give for her, and we see even her daughter now, Princess by Josephus, understanding her rightly, her name is Salome, Princess Salome, Herod's niece, she uses her, her own daughter. Sends her out in a for a sensual dance before the king, using her own daughter in such a derogatory manner to accomplish her wicked desires. 
So here's the scene that we have in verses 21 through 24. Herod's throwing a party. It's his birthday. He invites all the nobility from everywhere around Galilee. This is kind of like the who's who party of Galilee. To be invited meant you were of some elite class. No doubt they're drinking. They're enjoying a banquet. Their bellies are full. They're not in their right mind. They're definitely not sober-minded in this moment. And the wicked plot is revealed. The, wick, the most wicked mother says, go out there and dance for those drunk men. I want you to go out there because Herod's weak right now. This might be an opportunity. But she hasn't revealed her whole master plan to her daughter. No, she just tells her, go out there and dance for these men. So she does. And as we have read, the plan works. The plan works Herod, the perplexed, shows himself to be pitiful. For verse 22, for when Herodias' Herodias's daughter came out or came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish. This is a pitiful man here, and I will give it to you. And it's as though she's toying with him. She doesn't answer to him the first time. And he's thinking, oh, you know, he's thinking in his desires. He's like, well, and he makes this vow to her. I vow to you. I could give you up to half of my kingdom. If he thought for a minute, he's a vassal king. He can't give away any of his kingdom. This is how how preposterous he's even thinking now. He's not thinking rationally. And you see this rash vow coming from Herod. Reminds us of... Judges chapter 11 and Jephthah's, Jephthah's vow. Remember, Jephthah makes a vow. He says to the Lord, whatever walks through that door, I will vow to sacrifice. And it was his daughter. Rash vows don't turn out well. But now the vow is uttered. And Herodias in the, in the other room, as though she's eavesdropping along, I got him. I have now got him where I want him. I want to pause here just for a moment and just briefly make mention of something of theological significance. There are some religious groups that use the Bible, and they argue that from this account, birthdays are evil. Because this is the only one celebrated in the Scriptures. And I just want you to let you know that if Mark was sitting in here, he would say, What? That's not at all what I'm talking about. That's not the point of this passage. It's not to tell you birthdays are evil. Don't celebrate your birthdays. But there are some who believe that. The point here is that being faithful is going to cost you. Wickedness knows no bounds. Righteousness will be persecuted. That's the point Mark wants us to see here. Not constructing a theology that birthdays are evil. Therefore, we shouldn't celebrate them. If you don't want to celebrate your birthday because you just don't like what the next age is, that's one thing. Or if gravity is working against you, the more the age goes. That's another thing. We understand that. But we don't want to use Mark 6 as a text to say birthdays are evil. That's not the intent. So celebrate your birthday with a clear conscience. (laughs) But this plot here, as we see, leads to the wicked request. Herodias tells her daughter, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Here, this tale of wickedness has reached its climatic point. Herod is stuck now. He's in a pickle. What is he to do? He's made an oath. He's not going to back down on this oath, but he's, he's, he's fearful of his own reputation. He doesn't want to kill John, but now he knows that his evil 
wife of a wicked relationship has prevailed against him. So what is he to do? What he should have done is looked at the princess and said, I promise to give you whatever you asked. I didn't promise to commit a crime. He could have easily backed away from this and said, what you're asking me is beyond what I offered you. But no, he doesn't do that. In his weak moments, he obliges. He could have remembered and he should have known what Proverbs 17, 15 says. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both an abomination to the Lord. And he's about to condemn the righteous John the Baptist, an innocent man. Instead of acting like a true king, he acts true to his character. And he obliges to the wicked request and we see the wicked result. Verses 27 through 29. Immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. No doubt, John is downstairs in the, in the prison underneath the palace. The executioner is sent out, cut the head of the Baptist off. Herod, Herod doesn't want to do it, but he gives in to the pressure. We recognize here, John is guilty of no crime, yet dies a criminal's death. And some of his disciples come, as we see as the result, and take away his body. It's interesting, though, as we think back on this account. How did it start? It's talking about a resurrection. I would submit to you here that what Mark is doing in the genius of his writing is he is pointing his readers forward to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What you see here in this account of John the Baptist is to point you forward to understand what is about to come at the end of his gospel. Think about Christ and the parallel to this. He is seized and he is bound. He is seized for his message. It's not Herod, it's Pilate. Pilate is perplexed because he knows Jesus to be innocent. Same as Herod with John. But Pilate, as, as the same as Herod, gives in to the pressure in order to appease others and sends Jesus to be executed. Except... In the case of Jesus, the resurrection did occur. Even John the Baptist is a type of Christ, pointing us forward to Jesus. We aren't given here the details of John's disposition when the executioner comes, but if a glimpse into church history and the martyrs throughout church history and a glimpse into the life of Stephen and the final moments of Stephen's life I think it would be safe for us to conclude that John went out with boldness, with courage, with conviction. John was fearless to the end. 31 years old, he gives his life. His head is taken from him. And on a platter comes the head of John the Baptist, and it is served to the princess, but she's a puppet too. She just hands it off to her mother the evil mastermind behind this entire wicked tale. So, what do we see from this? Wickedness unchecked in the world knows no bounds. Sin has an appetite that can never be satisfied. The most heinous of evil can come from anyone. We see that across our land we see it here. When righteousness opposes wickedness, there are times where it seems that wickedness prevails. 
But that is not true. That is not the final end. Sin hates righteousness. John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the tale of what we see. Wickedness hates righteousness. We should prepare. We should be prepared for this. John the Baptist is not an anomaly Actually, the anomaly in the history of the Christian church is 21st century America. We stand as the anomaly throughout church history, a time where there isn't much by way of persecution, a time where we have enjoyed much ease, which creates slothfulness. But let's not just end with a tale of wickedness. We must look at a testimony of worthiness. We must see the Baptist for who he is. And I want you to first to notice here as we think about John the Baptist, he is a man of conviction. What I mean by that is he was completely convinced that God has spoken and he calls on people everywhere to repent. John lived out his conviction. Remember how he comes on the scene in Mark's gospel back in chapter 1, verse 4. He's a wild man. He's in the wilderness. He dresses funny. But he's got one message to proclaim. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He pro- proclaims a baptism of repentance. What we'd also notice about John is he trusted in Christ. Yes, you, you would read in Matthew, he had, his, he had his moments of doubt. So have we all. He trusted in Christ. We read in John chapter 1, verse 29, John's out in the wilderness. He's doing his thing. Crowds are coming to him. He's baptizing for, the, uh, for a baptism of repentance. And the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He trusted in Jesus Christ. All four of the Gospel writers devote attention to John the Baptist. It is important to notice that. Matthew gives us three different accounts of John in his ministry, his imprisonment, and his death. Mark gives us the most detail of John here in this passage. Luke shows us the miraculous nature of his birth. John gives us the most details of his ministry. This is not a man to which we should ignore. We must be well acquainted with the Baptist here. He was a man of conviction. And conviction breeds consistency. That's the second mark I want you to notice of John the Baptist. He was a man of consistency. His message was the same wherever he went and to whomever he went. From common people to the religious people to kings and everyone in between, John's message never changed. He's, we, we're introduced to him in Matthew and he's preaching in the wilderness He's preaching in the wilderness of Judea and his message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's not inviting certain kinds of people. Anybody that needs to repent needed to come out there, which is all people. And so John 
does not discriminate. Everybody needs to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then later on, he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming out. Oh, these are the religious elite, right? These are the ones who think they've got it all right. And he looks at them and says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Don't think because Abraham's your father that you have something. Don't think because of your lineage that you are something. You too must be made right with a holy God. But he wasn't just consistent in his message. He was consistent in his life. He demonstrates a life of faithfulness and a life of humility. He had a megachurch in the wilderness. He didn't have anything, nothing to attract a crowd other than convictional preaching. Brothers and sisters, that's all you need. And so they're coming out to him in waves. And yet he says, there's one who is coming after me that I can't even touch the sandal of his shoes. I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. That was the job of a slave. And he's saying, I'm not worthy to be a slave compared to the one who's coming. And he would repeatedly say, I'm not the Christ. He says, it's not about me. It's about him. He was consistent in his life of humility. He did not let his platform fuel his pride. His famous verse, he must increase and I must decrease. That needs to be the heart cry of all of us, that Jesus increase and we decrease. Brothers and sisters, you have one message, to lift up Jesus and then get out of the way. That's what we have to do. Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. So he lifted up Jesus and got out of the way. He was a man of consistency. Third thing of John a man of courage, no doubt. He is a hero. He is certainly a hero to be had in the scriptures. Conviction breeds consistency and it manifests in courage. Three questions we need to ask ourselves. These three questions. Do I believe these things? That is your conviction. Do I live these things? This is your consistency. Do I share these things? This is your courage. John, with conviction, consistency, and courage, stood right in the face of the civil magistrate who had the power to condemn him. And he said, this is sin, and this is wickedness. And he refused to apologize for the word of God. Proverbs 28, 1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. For John, it wasn't an option. He could not remain silent. When, wicked, when the wicked around him paid no regard to the righteous commands of God, John stood bold as a faithful witness. He wasn't concerned with the consequences, at least not at the hands of Herod. So, we should ask the question, 31 years old, seems a little young to go out. Did he waste his life? Should he have maybe toned it down a little bit? Think, hey, John, maybe easy on the rhetoric. That's not very inclusive language, John. Some people might get offended. What you're saying, John, is true, but you should be careful how you say that. You might get more people, you know, if you just kind of say it nicely. Maybe, John, if you kind of keep up this pace, someone might actually want to kill you. Now, you wouldn't want that to happen, right? 
I stand with Steve Lawson on this one. The problem with so many preachers today is nobody wants to kill them anymore. Compromise, apologies, and TED Talks fill the land every Sunday morning because convictional, consistent, and courageous preaching has been lost. A young man went up to Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great expositors of the 20th century, and he asked Lloyd-Jones, he said, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? Lloyd-Jones looks at him and says, young man, if you have to ask the question, you've never heard preaching. (laughs) We don't need less, John the Baptist. We need more. We need more who will stand firm with courage and conviction and consistency and say, this is what the Word of God says. So let's ask, did he waste his life? Absolutely not. No, what he leaves for us is a testimony of worthiness. I'm reminded of Hebrews. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. That's John. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. The world was not worthy of John the Baptist. Think about him. He's the last Old Testament prophet. He's the first New Testament evangelist. He's the greatest man not named Jesus Christ that has ever crossed the horizon of this earth. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than Samuel. He is greater than Elijah. He is greater than Abraham. Because Jesus Christ says this of John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That is heavy praise from the God-man. So when we look at the life of John the Baptist, it is a testimony of worthiness. And that leads us to our response. A task of willingness. As I said earlier in the title of this message, it's the reality of ministry. It will cost you everything. When I say ministry, I'm not talking about being a pastor, being a church leader, I'm talking about being a Christian. Because when you are saved, you are called into the ministry. Maybe it's not vocationally, but when Jesus Christ calls you and says you are mine, he calls you to be a minister of his grace to the world around you. We must be willing to give it all up for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, even if that means our very lives. Remind you of the words that Jesus said. He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the great paradox of the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, you know this. In dying, you live. In self-denial, we experience the Savior's endorsement. We are to deny ourselves, quite literally, the same word for what Peter did before Jesus. When denying ourselves, it is saying, I don't know the man. I am denying myself. I'm putting myself and my desires and my my desire to be first and my desire for comfort and my desire for ease and my desire just to have it all. I want to put that aside for the sake of Jesus. We are to die to self. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of this. You have been called into the very same struggle. Don't let the fact that we live in a time of peace 
the anomaly of church history distract you from the mission and the call upon your lives. As Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. You have been called to the same struggle as John the Baptist, as the Apostle Paul, as Jesus. We, have come, we must come to the point in our lives where we can identify with the Apostle Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. That we might be able to say with the clarity of conscience, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In essence, you are called to live the crucified life. I would submit that living for Christ only begins when we are willing to die for him. The crucified life is a powerful instrument against the kingdom of this world. The crucified life fears little of man, fears much of God. So my challenge to you, even this morning, will you surrender to this task? This task of willingness, willing to lay down your life for the sake of the gospel. It might cost you your life. It might just cost you a little bit of time. It might cost you the investment of your time, talents, and resources. It might just cost you a little bit of discomfort. What are you willing to pay? For some, you need to come to the cross of Jesus Christ and surrender your life in repentance and faith. Something that you have not done, you've carried your burden of sin a long time, and you found no relief in this world. I tell you that it is only at the cross of Jesus Christ that you will find relief, where you will find the forgiveness of sins. You need to come to the cross for the first time and find forgiveness there to be reconciled to a holy God. Lay down your burden there. For others here, for many of us here, we need to return to the cross. We need to return to the cross and be reminded that you have been called to the crucified life. Just as Jesus suffered leaving us an example that we too might suffer. So, are you ready to suffer? Are you ready to serve? A dear friend gave me a shirt just some time ago. It had this Charles Spurgeon quote on it. I absolutely loved it. Spurgeon says, You have not come to the highest style of readiness till you are ready for whatever the will of God may have appointed for your life. Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to risk it all? Are you willing to die? The reality of ministry is it will cost you everything. There was a sermon preached many decades ago by a man named Paris Reedhead. A sermon that God used to convert me. As he finished his sermon, he told a story of the Moravians. I want to share that with you as we would conclude now. Two young Moravians heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist atheist British owner had 2,000 to 3,000 slaves. The owner had said, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave. But he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all that nonsense. 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa brought to an island in the Atlantic there to live and die without hearing of Christ. Two young Germans in their 20s from the Moravian sect heard about their plight. 
They sold themselves to the British planter for the standard price for a male slave and used the money they received from their sale to purchase passage to the West Indies. The miserable atheist planter would not even transport them. The Moravian community from Heronhut came to see the two lads off who would never return again, having freely sold themselves into a lifetime of slavery. As members of the slave community, they would witness as Christians to the love of God. Family members were emotional, weeping. Was this extreme sacrifice wise? Was it necessary? As the ship slipped away with the tide and the gap widened, the houses had been cast off and were being curled up on the pier. The young men saw the widening gap They linked arms, raised their hands, and shouted across the spreading gap, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And this is the only reason for being, that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us into this struggle. Lord, may we take up this task of willingly laying down our lives as we look to our Savior who went to the cross courageously so that we can sing hallelujah for the cross. Amen.